Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 35th episode of the Truth Island podcast. As children, we most look forward to the day when we are just as tall as the adults, can drive a car, and are just as smart as our parents. Many of us finish high school, complete college, and find jobs that we are reasonably good at. And yet, at some point, you might have realized that you've stopped growing. Yes, you might pick up a book here and there, travel to the gym once a week, or try and brush up on your French before taking that big European vacation. But ask yourself this question, how have I changed in the last year? What new skills have I obtained? What goals did I accomplish? Some of us might say that growth is unnecessary and as long as you are able to go to work and pay your bills on time. Why does it really matter what one chooses to do in their free time? Joining me to help bring guidance on why exactly it is that we need to grow is John. John, tell me why after I just got home from a hard day of work and plotted myself down on the couch, why exactly do I need to push myself? Very good question, Aaron. Very good question. So there's a multitude of reasons that we are going to discuss in today's episode. Um, I believe it is of the utmost importance to add a fundamental identity attached with the desire to grow. What I mean by that is a lot of people will superficially identify themselves with forms. And I think it's much more efficient and effective in life to identify with philosophies in the sense that if I identify with a particular philosophy or a life mission or a vo- or a vocation or a calling, you can say, this means that my skills are transferable. This means that I am dynamic. This means that I am congruent with the constant flow of change in the universe and throughout all things in society and companies and organizations. And if anything, God forbid, external were to throw me off track or something like this, maybe being fired from a job, maybe being discharged from a position, maybe ending a relationship. If I was identified with the form, in other words, that relationship, or if I was identified with, I'm an accountant of this firm for 40 years, for 30 years, et cetera, that would destroy my identity. And this would become sort of like a crisis moment for me. So So, just to to kind of uh, make this a little concrete. So like I I used to know a lot of coders who only knew one programming language, like they learned mm -hmm. Java or something like that in the early 2000s. -hmm. And then all of that Mm -hmm. kind of just came to an end. So that's an example of somebody who's only thinking of the here and now present day comforts and not realizing Mm -hmm. that their lack of growth is actually impacting their livelihood and survival in some way. Am I getting you right on that? Yes, exactly. It's I would say that's living with the motive of pleasing your current self at the expense of sacrificing pleasure and growth for your future self. And superficially, this appears you know desirable. But long term, one of my favorite quotes of all time is from a mentor named Jim Rohn. He says, in life, you will pay one of two pains, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Uh, regret weighs pounds and discipline weighs ounces. So either way, you're going to have to pay. Either way, you have to put up the sacrifice, whether that sacrifice is now or later. You have the choice, but you don't have the choice of completely avoiding making this sacrifice in general in life. No, that makes perfect sense. So in other words, like it is like you are admitting that it is a sacrifice to not go to happy hour after work. It is a sacrifice because a lot of people, when they come home from work, they're very, very, very tired and they don't Mm want to necessarily take those community college classes at night and brushing up on their skills. So Mm -hmm. it is, you are admitting it is indeed a sacrifice, but that, but that sacrifice that you make in the present 
isn't going to be as bad as the sacrifices you'll make uh, in the future. Yeah, and to polarize it even differently in uh, terms of positive psychology, you could just rephrase it to making an investment, right? Mm. You're making an investment of time into your future. Um, and this is going to pay off just as any logical investment would do. And if you think about this, practically speaking, how people invest their time, their money, their resources is indicative of their belief. What I mean by that is, let's say I gave you an example of, for, for practicality's sake, let's say I'm a time traveler, okay? And I can tell you, I'm from 10 years in the future. And I can tell you this stock, this stock, this stock, I know for 100% fact, it's going to increase tenfold. What are you going to do, logically speaking? You're going to invest all of your spare dollars, if not even more, maybe even going to debt investing into this company. Now, polarize this and look at it in terms of like anthropomorphically. So look at it in your own life and say, if I had faith in myself that my value is going to increase tenfold in the next 10, 15, 20 years, what would you logically do? You would invest every single spare hour, every single spare dollar, every single spare opportunity that you had the access to do so. You would invest all of your resources into your future self, meaning, of course, sacrificing just like money. I could I could buy items and and and, cons and engage in consumerism or I could I allocate my money aside to investments. Is this a sacrifice of maybe a few nights of fun, a few nights of going out with my friends, a few nights of purchasing entertainment or something like this? Absolutely, you could look at it as a sacrifice, but you could also look at it as investment. And obviously the investment is going to pay tenfold in the future. Ah, uh, no, I, I agree with that. Do you think maybe some people feel uncertain that the growth that they're making in the present will actually pay off? Like they're not entirely sure what exactly it is that they should be growing at. And if that particular thing that they're growing at will pay off, because with your example, the, uh, with the stock market, it's a guaranteed, you know, it's guaranteed money in the bank. So I'm wondering if there's folks at home sitting and saying, well, I don't know if learning that language is really going to help me in life. Well, Absolutely. I mean, when you when you polarize it, obviously the stock thing was for sake of example. It's yeah. it, it's quantified. It's numbers. You see percentages. You see green or red, etc. You see a, a monetary return on this. So it can be a little bit more obfuscated in terms of our potential, in terms of our relationship, or our traveling, or our social skills, or our confidence, or whatever you know dynamic you want to apply this idea of an investment into. But nonetheless, I do think it is a practical example that is pertinent here because areas of our life are in our responsibility and they're in our control. So we have direct influence over our confidence. We have direct influence over our social skills, over our health and fitness, over our intelligence, over our vocabulary, all over all of these things in our life. So I do think it is still relevant here. And of course, you know, I, I stray from absolute examples of like a hundred percent. Yes, this, this investment is going to be a hundred percent valid or, or verified or whatever. But nonetheless, I do think it's valid to look at yourself, look at your life through a lens of more just longer term thinking instead of, like I said earlier, um, sacrificing your future self to gratify your present self. You know, that's not the most intelligent thing we can get in the habit of doing. You know, one thing that's also funny is this idea of incidental gains. So I might embark upon learning something new, like learning a foreign language, for example, and I don't see the immediate payoff, but I think that all pursuits have the potential to have some incidental gain where 10 years down the road, you're like, oh, they actually need somebody to speak French at this job that I'm applying for. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's also kind of like a way that sort of removes a little bit of that uncertainty of like, this will definitely pay off. How do, does that sound right to you, John? Yeah. Yeah. What did you mean by incidental gains? Like, uh, like how, how would this apply in a different thing than, than French, for example? 
for example, you had mentioned previously this idea of working out. And you may not be going to the beach and showcasing your six pack anytime soon. It may, it may be winter, but you always want to be in good shape because you never know when a hike might just randomly come up and you want to be physically prepared for that. So I think that in life, there are skills and there are things that we embark upon and we don't know necessarily if it's going to pay off, but they're still worthwhile just just for the sake of learning it. Absolutely. And this goes back, I think this ties into what I was talking about at the beginning of being identified with philosophies rather than forms. Yes. You know, so if you identify with yourself, I live a healthy lifestyle. It's not like I'm training for this marathon or I want to look good at the beach, as you just said. It's like, no, I just live a healthy lifestyle. It's just part of my philosophy. It's a part of my fundamental belief about myself. Life is most effectively enjoyed when I'm healthy. If I operate with that belief, I'm always going to be in shape year round, right? And then I'm prepared for anything. Yeah, that's beautiful because you never, I mean, you know, even if you have like, let's say a desk job, who knows if there might be a opportunity that comes your way that requires physicality in the future, you know? So I think mm-hmm. that just having that health mm-hmm. check mark always there is, is good. It's yeah. like, it's almost like insurance in a way, right? Like, you know, that you're covered yeah. if that ever comes up. When I was thinking about this discussion, why must we as humans grow? Um, I immediately thought this is my first, one of my first bullet points that came to mind actually, is there at, at any given moment, a myriad of contravening forces and agents that are attenuating us, that are enervating, that are pulling us down, that are fighting against us. Mm. Um, and this can manifest in several ways. This can manifest, let's say, for example, externally. So let's look at something pragmatic, like oh, uh, your career, your workplace, for example. If I'm complacent in my job, if I don't deliberately learn my skills, if I'm not brushing up on the latest industry knowledge or even product knowledge or service knowledge for my industry or for my company or for my business or my product or customer research, et cetera. If I'm not brushing up on all of those things, we can have an external obstacle being maybe it's another company, maybe it's a competitor, maybe it's another industry, maybe it's automation. There can be an external factor that is pulling away from me. And in this, in this case, obviously career can lead to lack of finances, lack of meaning, lack of responsibility, lack of fulfillment, lack of providing for myself and my family, et cetera, all of those negative ramifications. So that can be an example of external, um, an external uh, contributing agent, right? That is pulling us down. Another internal one can be something like doubt, can be something like neglect. Uh, going back to the practical example of career, if I fail to educate myself or if I just get complacent in terms of living for the immediate present, right? This could manifest in several ways. Let's say, for example, I have an opportunity to work overtime, I have an opportunity to step up and optionally take a position to give a presentation in front of the boss, but it's a little too demanding for me or it's a little too frightening. So I decide to just play it safe, stick to my lane, stick to what's comfortable, finish my shift, clock out, go home, watch TV on the couch. Mm. If I do that, that's going to internally lead to guilt, shame, probably regret, probably uh, lack of filling my potential from what I could be in the future. And uh, like I said, at any given moment, there's hundreds, if not thousands of forces that are pulling us down, some unseen, some intangible, some tangible, some immediately available to us. But at any given moment, there those things are omnipresent. Those are ubiquitous. And there is a web of reality that we must continually fortify ourselves against, I would say. It's one of these things where, you know, when people have something bad happen to them, when they get fired or something, is like the immediate thing they say is like, what did I do? What, what did I do? And you're kind mm-hmm. of saying, well, what about all those things you did not do? Like you didn't volunteer exactly. to do this exactly. or you didn't do that. So it's kind of taking responsibility or taking an onus for all of your inaction as a result of your present day circumstance. 
exactly. Yeah. Jordan Peterson has a phenomenal quote in 12 Rules for Life uh, in the chapter, tell the truth or at least don't lie. He says, never underestimate the destructive power of sins of omission. Omission mm. meaning something that is left out, like something small that you could have done but didn't do. So going back to that example um, of the career, this would be the example of your boss providing you the opportunity to do overtime or to do an optional presentation for, even if it's not compensated, just for attention or awareness, that would be a sin of omission. If I just dispensed with that opportunity and said, no, no, thank you. You know, that would be a sin of omission right there and never underestimate that because omissions, obviously they compound just like small daily choices, you know, running a mile a day. That's the positive application of the compound effect. Sins of omission are the negative application of the compound effect. Nonetheless, the universe is going to compound these things and they're going to look in the future magnitudes more, you know, exponentially more. I guess, detrimental than it would be in the present. So we look at things like not running a mile a day, not eating healthy, healthy foods every single day, every single meal as inconsequential. But in reality, those small choices that are almost mindlessly executed completely make our reality. This is how people, as you said, wake up in 20, 30, 40 years saying, oh my God, I'm fired. Oh my God, my job is being replaced by automation. Oh my God, my, my partner is filing for divorce. Oh my God, yeah. I, woke, I, I woke up and I'm, I'm suddenly 40 pounds overweight, right? These things don't happen suddenly. They happen day in, day out from these inconsequential choices that people just, you know, overlook completely out of omission. Yes. And you know, it's funny that like when I think of some very successful people in our society, like your Bill Gates a lot of them became successful with elective hobbies like bill gates would just choose to do to to be on the computer and kind of learn that as much as possible was that at all required for him to get through high school heck no like he didn't have to do any of that stuff so i think it's also important to think of all of these things that we could be doing, all these elective, all of the optional things that are available to us once we get out of work as turning, going from a hobby to the next big thing that takes over our life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I second that. Let's focus on some of the things that may keep a person down. Okay. So I guess we can start with externally, as we were talking about in the examples, maybe in a career sense, it could be uh, you know, as we were talking about competition, automation, ignorance, right? That's a classic one, just not failing to educate ourselves about our product or service or developing our skills for our industry. Um, and this doesn't have to be just career either. It could be external in the sense of a relationship, for example. Um, this could be the other person and it could be a, a manifestation of our neglect, of our sins of omission of addressing an issue when we knew it to be an issue in the relationship that manifested. So there, there's a myriad of them, you know, at any given moment. You know, I think, I think a very constructive approach to this is working deductively through a big issue. So let's say we have a big issue. You know, I, I just established some a minute ago here. Let's say like the 20 pound of a weight thing or like my partner's filing for divorce thing. Take that issue and work deductively. We obviously know it didn't manifest overnight. You know, it wasn't just, it wasn't a healthy relationship for five years and suddenly said, I want a divorce. I'm not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled. So work deductively, and more importantly, when you when you are working deductively, when you are breaking this thing down, you are looking at the steps that might have contributed, look for your contribution. Mm. Look for the variables. Look for the variables that you espouse and you brought forward to this equation that ended in that divorce or ended in that you being 20, 30, 40 pounds overweight. And I think that's that's very empowering. And it's very liberating because when you if we're going to work deductively and we just say, oh, you know, this manifestation was that person's fault or this was that person's fault or this is 
none of these things are my fault, but I can still work deductively and put them together. That's extremely disempowered because assuming it was, let's say, assuming for sake of responsibility, or for sake of argument, let's say the responsibility was completely on the other person, which sounds foolish, right? Like I did nothing wrong, <laughs> you did hundred percent of the things wrong, right? right let's yeah. just take that for example. That's extremely disempowering. Given that was the case, what could you do about that? Nothing. You can wait for them to change. You can wait for them to rectify and correct the situation, but that has, you, you've stripped away all of your power. You know, you've relinquished everything that you have in terms of changing that outcome. Now, if you look at it in terms of your responsibility, like this is my fault. What did I do? How can I mitigate this moving forward? How can I fix it now if I want to fix it? That's extremely empowering mm. because it's saying I have the power. I contributed to this, meaning I can actually change the outcome of this. Now, if it's objectively true or false, I think that's irrelevant here. You know, I tend to err on what what is most constructive and empowering in this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in other words, if you're filing for divorce, it's really important to be like, yeah, you know what? I should have gotten her flowers on Friday or yeah, you know what? There was mm -hmm. too many anniversaries that she had to remind me. And yep. maybe it's impossible to salvage that relationship. But now by doing that autopsy of why that failed and at least all of the parts that you failed to kind of address in your future relationships, you can kind of make corrections as needed. Exactly. Exactly. So I think, I think issues are going to manifest, repeatedly manifest until we learn the lesson in them. I want to talk about if you, let's say, are, are doing all of these things, you're giving life a full autopsy and when people meet others in their life, and, and this could be obviously your family is one variable or they're a group of people that aren't going anywhere, like you're going to, you have the parents that you have, or let's say you meet a spouse at one point in your life and kind of at the same level, maybe you don't really know what's going on in your life. And there is, you're, you're you start off on the same level, but then you sort of adapt a growth mindset and that other person is not adopting a growth mindset. I'm wondering if you could walk me through like how to deal with some of those those issues because I think that for, from what I from what I feel sometimes adopting a growth mindset is pretty mm -hmm. common sense to me. It's like it's completely yeah. natural like I want to get better. I want to be healthy. I want to work out. I want to make money. Like all of those things are just completely natural. I'm wondering what happens when you have other people in your life that they're just not seeing the light, John. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not seeing the light. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think that that particular situation would call for a lot of honest and humble discussion and inquiry with one another and with oneself. So for example, this can be in terms of setting the expectations for a relationship. You know, if I were to approach somebody or if I were just to start dating somebody casually and I was ready to move more serious, I can have a discussion. I should have a discussion rather and say, okay, what is like, what is your intention? What are your expectations from me and vice versa? Positing it in the way of saying, okay, I am somebody who identifies with the growth mindset. I'm always trying to continually grow and, and evolve and adapt and overcome things in my life. And I'm, I'm welcoming you to accompany me in this journey of growth mm. rather than saying, oh, I'm just looking for, I mean, I don't know that somebody would outwardly admit this, but saying I'm just looking for a relationship out of comfort to fill a void of lack of empathy or lack of compassion or something like that. I mean, obviously somebody might not articulate that, but that very well could be the, you know, adhering agent that's binding relationships together, like a void of something or just like fear of loneliness, for example, or fear of solitude. So I think a, a, a humble a humble discussion could serve great utility here saying, I identify with these philosophies. 
here's my, you know, five-year life plan. Even if it's not that detailed, like this is a general direction I want to go in my life. I'm extending an invitation for you to accompany me on this journey. If you, if you accept, absolutely, let's grow together. Um, and if not, this is where kind of we, we part ways uh, and grow apart. And, and it doesn't have to be like a detrimental thing to, you know, people are, are obsessed with quote unquote cutting people off now. I don't look at that as a detrimental thing. Um, you know, just as, as I said, grow apart, just as branches in a tree, right? They once shared a past in the, uh, maybe a branch or, or, yeah. um, or the root of a tree or something or the, or the trunk, but eventually given time and given circumstances, people grow apart, right? They shared a past, but it doesn't necessarily mean they have to share a future together. I hear you. Do you think it's at all possible for one member to keep growing and the other not to, and them to stay together? Like, could it be possible? Like, all right, honey, I'm going for my 10 mile jog and I'm going to come home and eat a healthy dinner. Like, do you think that that that's a sustainable model or do you think that one of, one of those ways kind of triumphs over the other? Personally, I don't think that's sustainable because, you know, as we evolve in consciousness um, and I don't even want to posit it as like better or worse or triumphing versus like something that's inferior. Um, I would just say grow apart. You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying grow ahead. I'm not saying grow beyond. I'm just saying grow differently. Like people have to deal with their own consequences of their lifestyle choices. Um, and I think as people would grow, their values, of course, grow because we're not static individuals. We are dynamic. We are ever changing with our experiences and our knowledge and our memories and our evaluations and our perceptions and our philosophies from all the information that we acquire throughout life, all of the experiences, et cetera. And I think as we would grow and as we would change, we would increasingly notice more discrepancies between us and our partner, you know? So it's like the example you just gave, somebody decides to get their health in order. They start running a lot. They start exercising, they get a personal trainer. They start, you know, filling the fridge with healthier groceries. The more they focus on health, the more they're going to realize their partner's unhealthy behavior. And I think the more that would actually uh, disturb them and bother them. Uh, and conversely, we work the other way as well. I think the other person might get jealous. They might get defensive. They might be Absolutely. justifying their, their decisions and feeling uncomfortable around them or, or feeling inferior in some way. So personally, I wouldn't think that is sustainable. Yeah, I, I would not. You know, the reason I kind of push back a little bit is that there's this idea in like couples counseling and these ideas out there that we all have to be open and we all have to compromise and sort of mm -hmm. blend our systems together in some way. Like, okay, you mm -hmm. know, you're going to jog with me for five miles and then I'm going to have some chocolate cake with you afterwards. Like, is there, is there room for any admixture of values where that person is kind of learning from you and then you're learning a little bit how to take it easy from them? Is that at all possible? Or do you think it's just like, man, we're, we're completely diverging and there's, there's no hope of saving this? I mean, this is very, very contextual. There's a lot of nuances. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Sake of example, what, what you just gave, for example. So let's say that person, you know, was on their 10 mile run and they can, maybe they're a very conscientious person, very ambitious, very motivated, and they're kind of working themselves to death because that could be a possibility. Um, and, and their partner is somebody who's like very, I don't know, reserved, go with the flow type person. So they could, maybe they could learn some objective value there. But the question is, what is the utility? What is the motive? What is the intention behind that quote unquote, slow down, go with the flow? Is it for recharging for further growth or is it to avoid responsibility? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of context and nuance. I don't think we can, you know, posit a uh, unequivocal answer and say yes or no here. I think that's a really, that's an excellent distinction, John, because you don't want somebody 
because I, I think like in the jogging example, you don't want somebody in your life who's just holding you down for the sake mm -hmm. of holding you down. Like I'm mm -hmm. not going anywhere. I'm stagnating and you're coming right down with me. So I, yeah. I, I think that that makes sense. But then if you do have a partner who also is fairly ambitious, but she kind mm -hmm. of sees, or, you know, it could be the opposite as well. He sort of sees that his wife is working too hard and yeah. he's trying to introduce some equilibrium into that relationship. Mm -hmm. And that can be positive. Absolutely. Any, any other recommendations, any other like huge pitfalls that, that, that you see that kind of keep people from growing? Because it's, it's, there's a lot of things that I think befall the individual and prevent them from growing. And, and we also have what, one thing that I was even hearing this is that there's this idea of like telling people something, like telling mm. people, I'm going to write a novel, I'm going to exercise mm. every single day. And that gives you like this elevated feeling without actually like yeah, accomplishing yeah. it. Could you speak maybe a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. That that sense of contrast between you and other people, it could work positively, but I think in most situations, in most expressions, it works negatively. Meaning that when you look at a disparity, when you look at a, Nietzsche would call it a pathos of distance between people. Um, so if I look at a very high achiever and, and they're ambitious, they have a, a lot of results that I would love to emulate, that could motivate me, right? That could be a positive expression of this distance. Um, a negative expression of this distance, because obviously universal laws, principles are only tools. It depends on how we use them. Just as I was talking about with uh, sins of omission being a negative application of a principle being the compound effect, a negative application of this distance can be justifying complacency by comparing ourselves to other people. So comparing ourselves to people that don't grow at all, or let's say I run a mile, I could say, ha, I'm better than everybody who ran less than a mile today. Right? Sure. which would be millions of people. And that could be, like you said, an elevated sense of superiority or something like that. Um, and I think it's it's very, very, very dangerous. To get, it, it promotes complacency when you compare yourself to other people. So a classic example is just com compare yourself to who you were yesterday, right? Are you better? Are you more competent? Are you more inte uh, intelligent? Are you more knowledgeable? Are you more ambitious? Are you more motivated than you were as the person or as the version of yourself that you woke up as this morning? You know, that's the only question that matters here. Are you continually growing against your former self? Mm. Uh, my favorite quote of all time is from Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It says, life, this secret life herself spoke unto me. Behold, I am that which must ever surpass itself. The most important word in that sentence is the last word, itself. I must ever surpass itself. Right. Meaning you are the control. You are the variable. You should only compare yourself to who you were the day prior, for example. And like I said, a lot of people, I think that is a, a major pitfall in terms of constant growth, in terms of growth in general. A lot of people will compare themselves to other people and get a sense of superiority saying, oh, I'm doing just fine compared to X, Y, Z. Oh, I might not have it together. I, I might not be in the best shape of my life, but look at these people. You know, that's, that's a very damaging psychological trap to fall in. Yeah, I always tell people when you're comparing yourself, always look up at the clouds, not down on the ground. <laughs> it's, I, I think that it's helpful. I'm wondering if you agree with me. It's like, I think that it's very helpful when you're growing to kind of keep it on the down low. And that actually sounds like a little counterintuitive because a lot of people will be like, oh yeah, you should tell people all the awesome stuff that you're doing. But I think that when you keep your growth on the down low, you actually achieve a number of things. Like one, you're not getting that false happiness by just telling people something mm -hmm. because you're, you're denying yourself that 
impulse. You're, 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 you're dying. You're denying yourself impulse pleasure by just telling people the awesome stuff that you're doing. And then yeah. two, you're not getting all these daggers from people that might be jealous or people who might want to hold yep. you down and not see you fly. So if you keep your growth on the down low, then you don't have, you don't have to deal with some guy being like, Oh, well, what's the point in going to the gym? You're just going to end up fat anyway in a year, you know? So like you sort of avoid all of that. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's no real valid reason for external validation of your goals, unless they can directly assist you in your goals. For example, like if, if you were a, if you had results that I wanted and I could say, Hey, I'm trying to do this. Can you help me? Can you give me some pointers? That would be an objectively verifiable situation where it's okay to outwardly proclaim your goals. Other than that, I think you're right. It's a, it's a release of dopamine. It's saying, I'm going to do this. It's, you know, setting these lofty aims. Um, and whether you get validation or you get uh, condemnation, I think both of those situations are irrelevant at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit about the hourglass and tell us a little bit about like what this means in the grand scope of uh, individual's life. Okay. This is a very, very powerful point. I don't remember the exact source I heard this from, but I have, I've had this idea of a, a reservoir of competence, I would say, um, or you could say reservoir of ability. I think hourglass is a very fitting metaphor to picture this by. And what it is, is it's predicated on the notion that once you stop actively learning and growing, once you stop deliberately evolving yourself, yeah, the time, the, the clock immediately starts ticking until the day comes where you will no longer have anything left of value to give, whether mm. it's to yourself, whether it's to the people that you love, whether it's to contribute to society. So there is a reservoir of competence and you can look at it as an hourglass, right? So it's continually running and you can look at the, the in, in the case of an hourglass, gravity, that's the contributing force. Uh, the contributing forces we already went over earlier can be external or internal. It could be competition. It could be neglect. It could be ignorance, et cetera. We already went through some of those. Um, but that can be the equivalent or the metaphor of the contributing forces in your own life. So you're always being, something's always pulling from you, pulling from your essence, pulling from your reservoir, pulling from your intelligence, from your capacity, from your competence, right? If you're not deliberately adding new information, maybe it's up-to-date up to date knowledge and tactics for your industry. Maybe it's character development skills. Maybe it's relationship counseling, et cetera. Whatever it happens to be, if you're not deliberately growing, you are getting lesser and lesser and lesser until eventually, I would say there's a time that's going to come where you you're trying to offer something to somebody. You're trying to help somebody in need, but they've already, you could say, surpassed your level of competence or they already have, quote unquote, more sand in their hourglass than you have to give. Or there's no differentiation between the constituents of their, quote unquote, sand or reservoir of competence. So in, in other words, you would have nothing to add to them or to yourself. And your hourglass would be empty in that case. It's kind of like I think um, like a, of an example of a father who's trying to help their kid with their math homework and the father does mm -hmm. a great job when the kid's in first grade and second grade third grade and then exactly. all of a sudden the kid gets to calculus and the mm -hmm. father's like oh man I, I barely remember my algebra I can't help you so that's an example yep. of like the child surpassing the father's mm -hmm. knowledge because the father was just you know didn't bother to have a much more richer hourglass. Exactly. Exactly. In, in that compartmentalization of math, for example, you know what I mean? And we can, you know, extrapolate this to just overall life experience, you know what I mean? Or confidence or self-improvement philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. And then also this idea, like life is an hourglass in the sense when we, we think of competency, 
everybody gets old, right? Like, we, I mean, unless you die young, <laughs> you pull right. a Jim Morrison and die young. We all, we all kind of get old. And most people, when they reach, you know, their 80s or something, it's kind of nice to be able to like look back at mm-hmm. things that you did. Because I think when you hit 80 and you don't have that stuff that you achieved, you're now at a state where you just can't turn it around. Like you're, you're already, you're at a, a diminished state where it's like, you're not going to go get your PhD. Most likely you're not going to be, have the, the mental acumen to get a PhD in physics at 80. It's kind of yeah. nice if you've already done that by the time you reach 80. Let's also think about this idea as life being a gift. You want to speak about that too? Yeah. So I talked about this before and to illustrate this point, I want to propose a, Another metaphor. So I were to gift you, Aaron, with a flower or a particular plant or something like this. What would be the first thing, a question for you, what would be the first thing you would do with this plant? Oh, man, I honestly, I probably throw it away just because I'm really bad with maintaining plants. But um, I guess the right I guess the, the right thing to do would be to plant it and, and water it. Right. If I was a responsible yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Out of mutual respect for, you know, the plant and for me, right. For yeah. give, bestowing you something of value of, I took my time or I took my money, whatever I invested into it. And I went out of my way to give it to you. So sure. out of respect for me, you would probably take care of it. Even if you didn't like the gift, you probably try to get the most possible use out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so looking at this, there's, a, there's actually a lot of deeply philosophical implications there. Like when you receive a gift, even if you don't like the gift, even if it's not, you know, exactly what you wanted, even if it's not, I don't know, if it's clothes you haven't wore or clothes that you wouldn't wear or clothes that are too big, you act like you enjoy it, right? And you try to get the most possible use you can out of it, right? So even if it's not just a flower or a plant, that's what you inherently do with gifts out of appreciation for the bestower of the gift and out of appreciation for something that you didn't do anything to earn, right? You just, you were gifted it. It was bestowed upon you. So look at this philosophically speaking, look at your life as a gift. Now, whatever theological implication you would believe gifted you your life, that's irrelevant here. But nonetheless, your life is a gift. You did nothing you could say to contribute to, to acquiring it. It was just bestowed upon you, right? You were, you were gifted with consciousness. Now, what do you do or what should you do with a gift? You would, logically speaking, try to make the most possible utility out of it. You would try to extract the most possible value. Again, even if it wasn't exactly what you wanted, even if it's not perfect, even if you have a little bit of discrepancy between other people's gifts, et cetera, you would still make the most possible use out of what you got. Okay. So I think that is a proper metaphor to look at the nature of life and look at the nature of why we should continually grow out of appreciation for life itself as a gift. Again, I think this is irrelevant in terms of where we believe we got our life from, but nonetheless, I think this is the exact symbolism of taking care of a plant and engaging in a lifestyle of continual growth. That is the, the equivalent metaphor here. I, I see. No, and I, this is interesting because some people kind of go through life thinking that life is a burden. I don't know if you've ever met mm-hmm. any of these people. They think it's like a great punishment. Um, I, I have some very cynical friends or but not, not friends anymore. They're, they've been eliminated from my life. But they used to kind of go, they kind of used to go by this axiom, you live and then you die. And, and yep. they, they sort yep. of see life as this burden and they see it as like something that is is cursed they think that like all of life so in a way 
and I guess, would you say that you have to, like, I, I think when you say life is a gift, you're sort of paying homage to like a God or a creator or, 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 or some, some entity that has put you here. And then if you have that mindset that like somebody took the time to create me and put me on this earth, it's up to me to kind of thank that person giving me the gift by living the best possible life possible. Do, do you think that that's fair? Yeah, you could say it's an external entity, but you don't even have to take it that far in terms of theologically speaking. You could even look at it practically. So going back to an earlier point that I established is it's, it's hard to verify objective, quote unquote, fact or truth. And it's there's a myriad of potential interpretations we can make about the world. So a point that I established earlier was I choose to side on the point of what is constructive and empowering, right? So using your using those prior friends you, you brought up as examples saying, oh, life is X, Y, Z. Life sucks. Life is miserable. Life is punishment. Uh, life is a burden, whatever. Now, in their eyes, they're right, okay? Is if I say life is a blessing, life is beautiful, beauty and meaning are, are to be found in every single moment if you look deep enough, in my eyes, I'm right, right? Now, yeah. who's objectively right or wrong? That's irrelevant. That's not the proper question. It's whose beliefs are empowering versus disempowering. That's the real question. Whose beliefs are constructive versus destructive? If you live with one of these set of beliefs, what happens to your life in 50 years and the people around you in 50 years versus the other uh, outward manifestation of that? A negative application life is a burden like what does their life look like what does the people in their life look like what does their net production look like in the world right what does their contribution to the world look like with that with those kind of beliefs right. right so if we say right or wrong i don't think it's really the correct application here i think more so like i said i side on the side of uh, empowering and constructive versus disempowering or destructive you know so it doesn't even have to be like an external entity versus a god it doesn't have to get re uh, religious or spiritual it's just i choose to operate with these beliefs and i've had these beliefs fortified through my experience and i choose to look at life that way because it's most empowering and that's how you in my opinion that's how you effectively make the most out of every single moment that we are given here so it's almost like um in some way as individuals a smart thing to do is to actually shut off our intellect just a little bit and kind of embrace the ideology that's going to best serve us, whether we can empirically prove that to be true or not true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then you can superimpose intellect on top of this. Our brains are initially at least very reactive um, and it loves, our, our mind loves to substantiate, I would say, unfulfilled gaps in knowledge. So I'll give you an example. I've talked about this before. If I tell you, to tell me three reasons. If I ask you to tell me three reasons why today sucks, like today's a terrible day. <laughs> today is miserable. This is one of the worst days of the week. This is 2020 is the worst year of all time. I'm your brain's going to want to, your brain's going to want to fill in that gap. Okay. Conversely, if I said 2020 is the best year of your life, tell me why today's beautiful. Today is extremely meaningful. Today is divine. Today is sublime. Today is of supreme importance. Tell me why. Okay. Mm -hmm. Both, both expressions are just my hypothesis externally imposed on you. Okay. They're superimposed onto your life. And then your intellect is, is going to, your, your subconscious mind is going to attach to that hypothesis. And then your intellect is going to provide reasoning and justification for that. So my advice is to be aware of whatever hypotheses you are subjecting to yourself to. And in society, a lot of times it is detrimental from advertisements. It's saying you're not enough. It's saying negative people, as you as you mentioned, life is a burden. Life is this. 2020 sucks. This pandemic is crazy. Life is life is all over the place. Those are all negative hypotheses. And your intellect is going to substantiate that. So I'd be very, very, very observant and aware of that. Not, not to make this too complicated. I'm wondering if there's somebody who says life is a gift and therefore I'm going to have as much fun as possible and spend as much time with people 
as possible. And they're not necessarily adapting the growth mindset, but they're adapting a sort of friendliness and cordialness to other people. What would you say to that person? I mean, that can still be applied. Again, there's a lot of context and nuances in terms of uh, an individual life. This could still be in terms of their definition of a growth mindset. You know, if they look at their major underlying purpose of growth as integration, as connection, as uplifting the spirits of other people, that can absolutely be in uh, a quintessence of a growth mindset, a, a growth lifestyle. I like that. I like that because then you can actually be social and have a growth mindset if your growth mindset is not to just engage in like meaningless chatter with people, but to actually impact their life, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the intention. Uh, John, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure. This concludes the 35th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.